This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's still not clear why it took the Navy six months to release an independent report on what led to the spill of some 1,300 gallons of toxic firefighting foam concentrate. The military held a news conference Friday to discuss the findings and to release video of the incident. Here's Admiral John Wade apologizing for the spill. This mishap was preventable. I've already said this, and it needs to be said again to the people of Hawaii that on behalf of the Department of Defense, I'm truly sorry. But I do want to be very clear before I go into details that the AFFF release was contained, cleaned up, and long-term environmental remediation and testing is ongoing in full coordination with the Hawaii Department of Health or the DOH and the Environmental Protection Agency or EPA in accordance with federal and state law. Admiral Wade put the blame on a military contractor, Kinetics, also known as Media Plumbing and Heating, which held the contract for maintenance of the fire suppression system. Here's how Wade explained the error. The proper procedure for the contractor was to disable the pumps so they wouldn't come on when you do the test. The contractor didn't do that. So the contractor, unbeknownst to him, sent a signal. That signal then went to the pump. The pump turned on. Fluid started moving through the pipe, went into the tunnel, got to the valve. It released because of the improper installation, went into the standpipe, and then overflowed. That's what happened on 29 November 2022. The State Health Department is calling for the Department of Defense to take responsibility for its shortcomings. This morning, we talked to the Hawaii Sierra Club's Executive Director, Wayne Tanaka, for reaction. So I appreciate that Admiral Wade has admitted that they actually needed a you know, hundred more people to just prevent this kind of thing from happening after we were told over and over again that everything was safe, that they would keep any more incidents from occurring. But at the same time, from what was described in the report, that's just one example of many, many other ways that this 80-year-old facility could end up further contaminating, maybe even destroying our water supply. And so it's very little assurance from this report that the next year and a half will be smooth sailing. The Department of Health did urge the Department of Defense to take onus of the situation. You know, we know it was the Army that did the independent report and review of what happened. And we're still not sure why it took so long to release the video and the report. But, you know, Department of Health is just urging the military to accept responsibility for this. You know, one thing that really concerns me, though, is that with the Department of Defense, uh, with all of these folks based on the continent, even the EPA, I, it doesn't strike me that they appreciate you know, the magnitude of what's happened, what's been happening. What, you know, our water has you know, supported us for generations, and it's some of the purest water in the world. You can't find water more pure almost anywhere on the continent, for example. And finally, now it's been contaminated, and we're going to have to constantly monitor our water supply, or you know, install monitoring wells, you know, test our water for years, if not decades or, or longer, just to make sure that it remains safe to drink, the water that comes, that's coming from our tap. And that's not even counting the, the water that's needed for like other things like our environment, like agricultural operations. And so while the DOD has to take responsibility, has to be held accountable, I really hope that you know, there are folks that 
know, locally based folks, I do appreciate how precious their water is and, and how serious the situation is to, to hold them accountable. And then, of course, making sure that they do act with an appropriate level of urgency, given that you know we're still not out of harm's way. That as bad as everything has happened, has been that we're we're still you know one earthquake, you know one fire, one catastrophe away from life on this island being irreversibly impacted. I was just stunned at the video and the fact that workers just kind of walk through this toxic concentrate, and I just was wondering, well, where else did they track this? What was your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely very concerned about, about the health of the workers or everyone who was exposed. These forever chemicals that's in the firefighting foam concentrate, you know, they've been linked to really serious injuries and even tiny, tiny minute amounts, amounts that we can't even detect uh, using current technology. Like, you know, those amounts can pose a health risk. You know, and I'm also very concerned about what other folks may, may have been or may, may be exposed in the future. There's no guarantee that they cleaned up all of the concentrate that's spilled out of the facility. They've paved, they've backfilled and paved over the contamination zone, so we can't actually go and test to see if they captured all of the all of the firefighting foam. And, um, you know, and we still don't know uh, the extent to which the, that concentrate might have leaked into the ground below the facility. You know, it's, it's concrete floors we know are porous, and so with all of that fluid for who knows how long, and in the facility itself, that could lead to eventually um, these PFAS, these forever chemicals, uh, leaching into the soil, and then, you know, over time making its way through the environment. And there's, you know, there's families that live, there's communities, neighborhoods right next to Kapukaki, in addition to, you know, the folks that live downstream, and, you know, eventually the folks that that may pull water from the groundwater underlying the facility. And getting back to the report's cause, human error, essentially they pointed to Kinetics, you know, the contractor that was responsible for the events that that triggered this leak. But what about the military's lack of oversight? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, again, that, that goes to my concern that they've never demonstrated an adequate level of care or appreciation for the magnitude of, of, of the threat that we've been placed under, that we are still under. You know, given that you know, we've been told so many times, so many times just over a year and a half, that after every screw up that you know, they've, they've found the problem, you know, they're going to they're gonna fix that problem and make sure that you know, nothing like it happens again, and then something happens, right? And, and so just looking back and seeing how little oversight that they exercised over kinetics, over their contractor and contractors, it, it just leads me to wonder, you know, when is the next shoe going to drop, you know? Are these things just harbingers of an even greater catastrophe, something that could, that could change life as you know on this island? Well, we've asked the military, what is the blast zone if, you know, something catastrophic were to happen? You know, because we're dealing with a fire suppression system here. And if there is a fire, you know, we, we've been told that the type of fuel that they house there now, the JP5, is less volatile than what used to be there. But we still haven't gotten the information that we asked for. So my understanding is that, you know, liquid JP5 jet fuel, it is less volatile than, say, like gasoline or some other types of fuel. But there is the danger of vaporized fuel. So, you know, if you have an empty pipe that had fuel in it and there's JP5 vapors in there, that that, that will be, you know, highly volatile. So that's that's a concern. You know, we have been asking, urging that they no longer use PFAS-based uh, AFFF. So they use firefighting foam without these forever chemicals because there are alternatives that exist. What I've been told is that they are committed to not using, you know, these forever chemicals-based uh, AFFF, but, you know, we'll just have to see 
you know, whether they'll, they'll stick to that commitment. Yes, they have indicated that they're pulling back on that use. Anything else that struck you about the lack of oversight? No, again, I don't even know how many times they've screwed something up and then promised they would keep it safe and then only to have them to screw up. And really, to be clear, there is no room for screw-ups. There's, you know, it's not, mistakes are unacceptable. You know, our island, as we've been seeing for years and years, you know, our island is at stake. This is our, our lives. This is our, our future, our children's future. You know, all of our children here in Hawaii, if we want them to have a, a shot at a, you know, livable, thriving place to call home, then we're going to have to protect the water that, that's absolutely essential for that to happen. You know, mistakes like this are unacceptable. Uh, this entire situation is just unacceptable. And so, we, you know, we can't let up. You know, we, we can't let our elected officials let up, our government regulators. You know, we, you know, we put them in office, our taxes pay the salaries. You know, they call Hawaii home, too. So I would ask or urge uh, that we continue to reach out to them, write letters to the editor, to the governor, uh, reach out to, to our congressional delegation, to the Pentagon and the White House, and let them know that, you know, the, what's at stake is... There's, the stakes are far, far too high to treat the situation as anything other than an absolutely highest level emergency. You know, the, the Department of Defense is $800 billion, and, and yet we have to wait over a year, praying that the next group won't be the big one, you know, the one that just completely sinks all of our hopes and dreams for a livable future. And, you know, that's just, you know, unacceptable. Again, it's going to take, I think, all of us to make sure that people in the Department of Defense in Washington really understand what's truly at stake here. The Navy says that it's making good progress on the repairs to the facility. You know, we're waiting for Department of Health to double check some of the work, but that it should be on track if it doesn't speed up this process of defueling. Uh, Any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I I appreciate that the team, that the Joint Task Force, you know, is making, I think, some good headway compared to, you know, their timeline. Again, that timeline itself, I don't think is based on uh, the true level of emergency uh, that the situation calls for. One of the big concerns with that timeline is that, you know, a lot can happen, you know, between now and when the fuel is, def- is removed from the facility, when the facility is supposedly decommissioned. It, you know, it was, a, it was almost like a flip of a switch where the Pentagon conceded after years and years and years that this Red Hill facility wasn't, uh, wasn't essential to national security, that they didn't actually need to build another $10 billion fuel storage uh, facility in another location. But that posture could change. You know, we could have a new administration in the White House. We could have a new Congress. You know, the geopolitics of you know the Indo-Pacific could change, and then all of a sudden, we might be back at square one, where the Pentagon is is saying that they need this you know facility because they think it's it's essential. So, you know, that's a big concern. You know, on top of the whole sword hanging over our head with, with, in in the form of the 104 million gallons of fuel. You know, that said, the military is in the process of soliciting ideas from the public about what to do with these tanks. Its option, its preferred option, is for them to remain in place. Any thoughts about what you would like to see? Well, I think the discussion about specific, you know, beneficial reuses or potential reuses is absolutely premature. We don't have, you know, any good idea of the integrity of this facility. So, you know, planning to use it for things that may just not be physically practical, I think is, I think the timing of that is off. I think in any case, whatever happens to this facility, it needs to be permanently disabled. You know, taking out the steel liner, taking out the pipes, anything that'll prevent a future, you know, federal government from overriding Hawaii's call for this facility to be shut down. We just need to prevent any potential for this facility to be reused, no matter, no matter what DOD 
officials may be saying now today, because that can change. One thing I think is, it's really important to, to remember is that there's still so many things at play and so many things that need to be resolved you know, on top of this bill. You know, people still need help. People still need relief. There, there are folks who are poisoned who are now being driven into poverty just because of um, you know, what they've, they have had to do, what they have to do to, to find you know, medical care, um, to replace all the things that were exposed to petroleum. You know, there's still issues on, on the Navy's water line, so people need to be told that there are still reports of sheens in tap water, of, of illnesses consistent with petroleum exposure. You know, we need on-island water testing facilities so we don't have to wait weeks or months to know if you know, our, any of our wells are contaminated. Um, all of the funds, the taxpayer dollars we've spent on water testing and monitoring wells um, that we will spend, you know, we need to be reimbursed for that. You know, and for transparency, you know, not force, just forcing us to wait, you know, like five, six months just to watch a video of our of our island being, being contaminated. So there's a CDC ATSDR follow-up survey from, I think, September of last year that indicated that several hundred respondents uh, were still seeing intermittent sheens in their water. In September um, of last year. And, Anything recent? There's anecdotal reports also on, you know, social media um, where families, you know, report whether they've been seeing recurring health symptoms or or even issues with their water. That's all. Um, the Navy's been pumping and dumping five million gallons, gallons of, of water a day from the, from the mm-hmm. Red Hill shaft into Halaba Stream. The State Water Commission has been asking them for well over a year to figure out some way to put that water to a, a more beneficial use. And as far as I know, there's been there's no progress in that regard. That was Wayne Tanaka of the Hawaii chapter of the Sierra Club, which has taken the military to task over its handling of spills at the Red Hill underground fuel storage facility over several decades. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. NPR's Mary Louise Kelly. When her son was born, he was sick, but she didn't know how sick he'd been until years later. I think it caused me to go back and think about some of the choices I had made. I went to Pakistan for two weeks before he could walk. Like, would I ever have let him out of my arms if I had known how close I had came to losing him? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, 
Onihau o kawai o ahu o molokai o lanai o mau o kahoolabe o hawai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about a medical facility with a long history in our islands. It was originally called the Victoria Hospital Association, but in August of 1901, a new association absorbed and rebranded Victoria to the Honolulu Home for Incurables. A year later, the hospital board bought 16 acres of land in Kaimuki for $9,000 and moved the facility there. Another five years went by, and then another name change happened. People now call the facility Leahi Home. At the turn of the century, the property was still considered remote, and it took years for running water to be made available. In fact, electric lights weren't installed until 1907. In those early years, there were four wards to house 15 patients, and they could only treat a few dozen a year. By 1926, new construction added capacity for a total of 135 patients. With the construction of the Alexander Young Building in 1951, Leahi went from a cluster of cottages to a multi-million dollar hospital. Bed capacity jumped to over 700 beds. By now, you probably recognize this Kaimuki landmark, which is still in operation. But do you know when the name Leahi Hospital came into use? That's today's quiz. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. Check today, Honolulu Civil Beat gives us a roundup on how environmental bills fared this legislative session. Reporter Marcel Henri joins us today. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Happy Aloha Monday. <laughs> Happy Monday. So, yeah, how did uh, we do on our environmental bills? Well, in short, as one legislator described it to me last week, it was a mixed bag. And that legislator, Senator Mike Gabbard, went on to use further colorful language that (laughs) I can't really use for uh, listeners here on public radio. However, it was related to uh, cesspool uh, legislation that was largely anticipated to pass and didn't. So you might imagine the word that he was using to, you know, describe cesspools in general and how the process went in terms of trying to get that much-needed legislation across the finish line this year. Yeah, because we've got the EPA kind of wielding a big stick with a deadline, like, okay, hurry up already. Yeah, we got, you know, consent decrees and and all sorts of, of issues to try and address what, what's happening here. You know, you have 50 million 
uh, gallons estimated of raw sewage to leak from cesspools into streams and the the land and into nearshore waters every day, 83,000 of them. Uh, It's not a a new issue. I'm sure a lot of people are very familiar with it. There was a a state uh, task force, a, a working group that uh, started really rolling up their sleeves, so to speak, and looking at this about four years ago and came up with some recommendations. They said, we really need to even accelerate our timeline because uh, the Hawaii's environment can't wait. And there was some legislation that would have really started to tackle it. Um, and it, it died in conference along with a lot of other bills this year. Yeah, a bit of a head scratcher. I know it was a, a, a you know, gosh, <laughs> tumultuous there, to say you know the least. Uh, people concerned about what was happening with the budget, but yeah, this is kind of a head scratcher. You would think that they would uh, kind of pass some legislation to uh, get us toward that goal of shutting down those cesspools. Yeah, I mean, this was one of a really a, at least a, two or three very high-profile bills that seemed to have a lot of support in terms of. Hawaii's environmental and, and climate-related challenges, that, that seemed like they had a really good shot of getting past this year. The other one that, that people might think of is the uh, the visitor impact fee, or so-called green fee. Uh, that also died at the last minute in the, in the uh, conference session, despite humming along and even, you know, getting a hearing uh, uh, in the conference, the, the, the very um, pivotal conference meetings. But, yeah, it just seemed like there was a lot of chaos. And that's what a lot of people are um, at least ostensibly pointing to, um, you know, as we round up uh, this year's session, saying that just so much died at the end because uh, there there really was a lot of organized chaos there. And there were some bills to deal with those forever chemicals, the PFAS uh, chemicals. Right. Unfortunately, that's another one that died. They have uh, passed some some bills uh, successfully, and in, in, I think it was last year, uh, in regards to PFAS or, or forever chemicals. But this year they were trying to strengthen the restrictions even more and ban uh, those chemicals in food packaging and personal care. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very um, timely, you know, on Friday the, the – Navy released in a report uh, that showed, frankly, some you know lax oversight in terms of the spill of, of those forever chemicals at the Red Hill facility, and you know those chemicals are po- coming up in, in elevated levels, uh, being detected in community water systems in in Kunia and Waipio and and all around the island. They're they're prevalent in, in military installations, uh, so that's one that that you know some of these uh, you know uh, Rep- Nicole Lowen. Uh, flag that one as well as, as Senator Gabbard as, as one that they had hoped would pass. Okay, so if those were the minuses, what are the pluses? There were some pluses. Uh, you know, uh, sent, uh, Rep. Lowen pointed to a $100 million that are in the state budget that will help finance solar and battery uh, energy projects for low-income homes. Uh, so there, w- And there's a lot of money also um, in, in the budget for uh, trail and, and conservation protection. So where legislation died, there was a whole lot of money thrown into the budget. Uh, so there was that. There's also some legislation that looks to further lock in the conservation of the Ka'iwi coastline, uh, which is a protected shoreline. But it, it's urging state officials to create a state park. And really, uh, there, there's language that's passed in there that whether it's a state park or not will will apparently lock in those protections in perpetuity. 
Okay, so while there are efforts now to protect it, this just, um, I guess, seals the deal. That's that's what the, the language in the bill says. So, okay. <laughs> so we'll see. All right. Okay, well, we appreciate the roundup. Thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Allray with today's Reality Check. You can read the story at civilbeat.org. Artificial intelligence has been capturing the headlines in recent weeks. Today, HBR reporter Cassie Ordonio takes a look at what's happening in our schools. Heard of ChatGPT? <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I had not really paid too much attention to this. You know, my kids are all grown up, but if you've got a teenager, this is something you need to know about. I'm a full-grown adult, and I just <laughs> learned about ChatGPT through Comedy Central South Park. Ah, uh, okay. And that's how I learned about it. I've heard about it in the news, but um, ChatGPT is basically this chat box that's powered by artificial intelligence. And you can basically write in the chat box, let's say you want a rap poem, or you want a full-page academic essay about coastal erosion with six citations. I had one um, DOE teacher come demonstrate how fast it can actually write a full page essay with citations. It was actually kind of scary seeing how fast in a matter of seconds, actually, um, it wrote a full page essay in about 45 seconds with six citations about coastal erosion. And um, the DOE teacher I spoke to, Brooke Nazar, uh, at Kalani High School, she said if she wanted to, she could have been more specific saying, oh, I could write this and uh, asked ChatGPT to do it in MLA format or APA format. So it was really interesting to see how fast it spat out all that information. And it's caused a lot of commotion in all these Hawaii schools, public and private, even at the university level as well. But in my story, I specifically focused on public and private schools and how teachers are grappling with this new technology. And so for Brooke Nazar, uh, she ended up catching some of her students, actually 10 students, 13 in total, using ChatGPT. Um, and it was a funny kind of story where she, um, it was a homework assignment where <laughs> um, students basically answered the same question, but that answer was wrong to Toni Morrison's book. And for Brooke Nazar, she heard of ChatGPT, so she put that into ChatGPT, the same question, and out pops that same wrong answer. And so she thought to herself, maybe I could use ChatGPT to a benefit. So she ended up creating these um, three writing prompts. So there's three essays about coastal erosion. One is written by ChatGPT, the other's written by a teacher, and the, the other one's written by a ninth grader. Turns out all of them were written by ChatGPT. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so that was actually a big surprise to her students. And ChatGPT is so sophisticated that it can actually have grammatical errors like what a ninth grader would use. It can actually have like some grammatical errors, what a teacher would use if they're not double checking. But Brooke Nazar has this to say about what she wanted her students to realize about ChatGPT. The other thing I wanted them to realize, which I think they came around to understanding, is that it's not perfect. It's not going to spit out some flawless essay for you that you can then turn in. And if you rely on it in that way, 
you're going to get in trouble if someone reads it closely because all of them, each one of those three different essays had issues that would immediately either determine that it was written by AI or that it was factually inaccurate if it was just read closely. Interesting. It's, it poses a question, where do you draw the line? Because even like when, when we were in school, um, the internet was a thing. And I've had teachers tell me, oh, are you going to remember to go to the library and crack open a book? Or when Cliff Notes was a thing and Wikipedia was a thing, um, are students actually going to rely on this source of um, information? But for Brooke Nazar, it was actually um, a learning tool for her to actually teach her students to still practice critical thinking and to teach them not to plagiarize and not to, to cheat. So when she surveyed her students, she asked them, why are you using ChatGPT? A lot of them said they have trouble brainstorming. They get writer's block. So they use ChatGPT to kind of get started without copying the information on there. Or sometimes they treat ChatGPT like Google. You know, in Google, you can ask them a question um, and then ChatGPT will spit it, um, spit it right back out with citations. So it's kind of like Wikipedia where you can click on those citations and go from there. That's kind of a starting point to the research. Um, so for Brooke Nazar, that's just one aspect of how she's been using it to, um, to her benefit. But teachers are also using it to their own personal benefit. Some teachers are using ChatGPT to write to um, the superintendent, for example, because sometimes it's hard to get started. How do you write to um, an upper level boss with the correct tone? You More don't want to say, mm -hmm. yeah, you don't want to say, hey, what's up, superintendent? So um, ChatGPT also consumes time and it saves money. There's actually a story that I wrote maybe earlier this year about teachers pay teachers. Um, one teacher actually spent more than $1,000 in one school semester. So if she used ChatGPT to create these lesson plans, she would have saved more money. Um, but that's just one aspect of how teachers are using it to benefit them. Well, it's interesting because I, I think, you know, writing was always so painful for me and it took me forever. And so to think that, you know, you've got this, this uh, ChatGPT, they can, they can spit it out in 45 seconds is stunning to me. It, it's almost... There's this joke I had between me and my friends, especially as journalists. Uh, you can actually have ChatGPT write a news article. I haven't done it, but someone else has. But even um, having a, a journalism friend say, my mother called me to ask me, are you going to have a job after this? Well, it turns out we're still going to have the job because AI is not going to do the reporting for us. Yeah, but it's just amazing that you have to really keep on top of all this technology. Yeah, and you've got a second story uh, also uh, uh, playing tomorrow in, uh, on policy, so we'll look forward to that, too. Thank you, Catherine. That was Cassie Ordonio, the newest addition to our news department staff. You can find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. This Tuesday at 8 p.m., 
the Hawaii Symphony returns to HPR 2 with conductor Joanne Folletta and violin virtuoso Joshua Bell, performing works by Barber, Copeland, Bernstein, and Gershwin, as well as compositions by Joan Tower and Florence Price. That's 8 p.m. Tuesday on HPR 2, your home for classical music, right after Evening Concert. Sponsored by Honolulu Financial Partners. Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the outrigger Waikiki. Henry Capono joins up with Brother Nolan to play music and talk story with emerging artist Noelani Love, 6.30 p.m. this Wednesday. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. tuned to Hawaii Public Radio. When our listeners have comments or questions about interviews that we air, they often leave a message on our talkback line or they send us an email and we'll share those messages on the air with you. Gerald wrote in after hearing our segment on a new book about Portuguese in Hawaii. I listened to this program today and I'm quite interested in this topic, Portuguese food. Why is it that we do not have a Portuguese restaurant in Honolulu? There was one long time ago in the Macaulay area near the Pagoda Hotel and Restaurant. There was also a Brazilian restaurant in the downtown area. Every ethnicity in Hawaii has their restaurants, so we have become familiar with their foods. There are no Portuguese restaurants, so we are only familiar with malasada, pau dolce, linguiça, etc., a few items. Why? Even growing up in Kapa'a, Kauai, where there was a large Portuguese population, we did not taste Portuguese cooking. Curious. That was from Gerald Takisono. We also heard from you following last week's series on the Smithsonian Exhibit 1898, U.S. Imperial Visions and Revisions. Hey, this is Margo Vitarelli. Just wanted to say the conversation about the Queen's portrait going to Washington was beautifully done, very moving, and I really appreciated you putting that on the radio. Aloha. Bye. And this also came into our mailbox. I just read your article about Queen Liliuokalani's portrait. I couldn't help but then research the history of Hawaii and its annexation. We were not taught about U.S. colonialism and politics in school. Frankly, I was left heartbroken and disappointed. What an impact this decision had on the native peoples of Hawaii. I reside in Arizona, and I personally have disliked how our native peoples are dismissed and their culture waning. While that is changing, we have lost much of their richness. Thank you again for your heartfelt and honest writing. Kind regards, Joanne Santellen. Thanks for the feedback. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. And it's time now for your Backyard Quiz answer. Earlier, we told you about a Honolulu medical facility that went through numerous name changes. 
It began at the turn of the 20th century as the Victoria Hospital. It was later called the Honolulu Home for Incurables, and in 1906 was known as the Leahi Home. In the early years to help with finances, the home grew vegetables, had a dairy farm, and a chicken coop. Its humble beginnings began with room for only 15 patients at a time, most of them suffering from tuberculosis. Advances in the treatment of the incurable disease led to a shift in focus over the years. The facility eventually expanded with additional construction at its 16-acre site over the years until it dominated the Kaimuki skyline at six and a half stories, covering a whole block along Kilauea Avenue on the slopes of Diamond Head. It remains in operation today, serving a limited number of patients as part of the state's Hawaii Health Systems Corporation. And for you history buffs, the official name change from Leahi Home to Leahi Hospital happened in 1942. We had no winners today, but that's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, celebrating Mother's Day. Announcing an afternoon with Hawaii artist Misha Lam, 11 to 3 this Saturday, featuring jewelry and wall art created for the modern mermaid. Today on The Daily, Adam Liptak reviews the allegations of misconduct of Supreme Court justices and explores the growing calls to do something about it. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, assisting clients with building and energy code compliance, featuring LEED certification services. GreenBuildingHawaii.com. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, recently awarded an $8 million grant to a partnership of several local organizations working to restore and preserve East Honolulu's Mauna Loa Bay. One of those organizations is the nonprofit Malama Mauna Loa. It was formed in 2006 and is committed to restoring and conserving the bay through science and planning and education and outreach. The conversations Russell Subiano took a trip out to Kuleo'o Beach Park. He talked to the organization's executive director, Doug Harbour. How big of an area are we talking about? So Malama Monolua focuses on Monolua Bay, which is one of the largest bays in the state of Hawaii. I believe it has roughly eight miles of coastline that go around it and... This grant is going to focus on restoration from the ridge to the reef in the Kulio'o, Niu, and Wailupe Valleys. Okay, so, so a pretty significant area of East Oahu. Yes, and, and those valleys were chosen, or those watersheds were chosen in part because there's partners already working there that we could partner up with and, and tackle some of these issues, but also those are ones that have unique challenges. Kulio'o Stream, for instance, tends to have a lot of pollution coming off of it. So there was a number of reasons that focusing on those made sense. 
And I know your organization has been serving East Oahu for many years, and I read that this grant will progress your efforts in the Mauna Loa region. What will that progress look like? So the, the grant has, there's eight partners involved doing everything from forest restoration to stream restoration to, to runoff. And so the terrestrial aspect of it, it's really going to help us enhance the capture and retainment of stormwater runoff, which is a major problem for water pollution in the bay, which for Mama Mauna Lua is a major concern. And then the grant will also help us build up our efforts on coral restoration by planting climate resilient coral. The issues that affect the bay are ones where the runoff coming from the mountainside empties into the bay and the pollutants and the sediments that the runoff carries with it, that's what's the most significant impact to the bay. Is that accurate? Generally, yeah. Water quality is a major concern with Mauna Loa Bay and really with all the waters in Hawaii. And, And it's a combination of sedimentation from erosion that gets down there that can potentially choke the coral and kill it. But also with all of this development, when you have runoff, like we're sitting out here right now in the rain and it picks up gas, it picks up oil and stuff like that, that gets into the stream and gets out here. And so, you know, you'll notice after heavy rain events, when you go down to the bay, it tends to be brown and it really shouldn't be that brown as, you know, in addition to all of that, you have all the toxins and pollution that come with it. And I know with the anticipated sea level rise, I imagine that that will make your efforts even greater. How, how do you anticipate sea level rise impacting the efforts to, to take care of the bay? So sea level rise will have a couple of factors with it. You're not only inundating the land, that increases erosion, but then you also have, if the corals die off and we don't have the reefs there that dampen some of that wave energy, you now have more wave energy hitting the, the shore, which means there's more runup meaning greater areas are getting wet and erosion's even increased. And so that has kind of a multi-punch effort on what we're trying to do, or will effect of what we're trying to do. And so we're going to be planting coral in part to have reefs that survive global warming or uh, survive climate change so that when sea level rise occurs, those waves are dampened out in the ocean and not on our shores. I feel like sea level rise, especially for us being in the middle of the Pacific, is is an important issue. And I know a lot of the work that you do is in the ocean and is affected by runoff into the ocean. And so I feel like you guys are in a unique position to be impacted by sea level rise. So I feel like it's important to know what you guys are looking at as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, climate change as a whole is going to affect every aspect of everything we do. And so... You know, not only sea level rise, but then you have coral bleaching, which can kill coral. Hey! You have got (laughs) a little dog friend trying to get out of the rain. (laughs) Um, You know, it's going to impact native habitat for birds, for, you know, you have um, infectious disease. There's just every aspect of our lives are going to be impacted by climate change. And so it's kind of figuring out those areas where we can have a positive benefit locally and going through those and checking those off, trying to say like, oh, well, this is something we can address, we can adapt to, so let's do it. Okay, okay. And I know you're the biggest, it seems like the biggest community event or the community, the way the community can help you guys or or has been helping you is through the Huki, where groups will come down and they'll pull invasive mudweed and other invasive seaweeds from, from the bay. When you look at the funding that this grant allows you, will you be able to do more or expand those kinds of efforts to 
complement the work that's already being done in the bay in, in terms of getting rid of invasive species? Yeah, I, I think the, the bigger benefit, frankly, it, it does benefit the hookie in that invasive algae likes degraded water quality. It thrives there in a way that native species don't. So by improving the water quality, by funding forest restoration through our partners in, in the forest area, by working on stormwater runoff in the developed areas, it helps build out all those effects. So you remove the invasive algae, and then the water quality in theory is going to be cleaner, which means native habitat is going to be able to expand. Native species are going to be able to come back in. But then the other big part of this is the coral planting. And so that's a big way to kind of kickstart the restoration of the coral habitat in the bay. And I was just thinking about all the years that, that the Hookie have been going on, that Malama Maunalua has been serving East Oahu. How can you continue to make progress if the urban aspect of the land surrounding the bay, if that doesn't decrease? We can still make an impact. And we've been able to show through our Hookie events, for instance, that you can improve the, the habitat of the region. But having that stormwater element hanging out there is like a weight on our back. And so we can make progress, but the progress would be so much greater if we were able to address some of the stormwater runoff coming on that's degrading the water quality of the bay itself. What do you think the ideal circumstances would be for your organization to do the best work possible? I think there's a combination. I think a big part of it is the stormwater runoff is coming off of people's land. And we have a number of partnerships that are helping landowners or property owners to implement simple things. There's a lot of easy things that people can do at home that can have a big effect on reducing runoff. And so it's getting people to implement that. And then we're going to be starting again this summer our coral planting efforts. And we have partners that are doing forest restoration and getting people to come out and really help with those events. You know, we're all small nonprofits working around here, and we really need people pitching in because we don't have the, the staff and the, and the ability to handle it just ourselves. When you talk about staff, I, I know Malama Bonalu is a, is a small nonprofit that does, you know, a lot of work for the, for the resources that it has. How much of the grant helps to bring more people in, onto staff to be able to broaden the scope of your work? I don't know necessarily that it's going to be able to bring in more staff, but it'll help give us the stability to ensure that we can start looking for new opportunities as they come up. And so the grant is a three-year grant, and that gives us the under, you know, the comfort level that for the next several years we're going to be able to be fully funded on certain aspects of some of these projects. And so that gives us the flexibility to say, is there an area that we need someone new coming in to help us? And let's find out you know, where we can find funding for that and bring them in. We're at Kulio'o Beach Park, and Kulio'o is probably my favorite place. And for a bunch of reasons, you get this really great view of... Cocoa Head, you have this wide angle view of a good chunk of the bay, and the sandbar shifts a lot. So there'll be days where you could walk on the sandbar for, I don't know, like half a mile out, and then other days the water is right up next to the to the shoreline. I see a lot of people here today with their pets, with their children. Do you also have a favorite place within Mauna Lua Bay or on this side of the island? Funny enough, I, you know, work for Malama Mauna Lua, so my focus is the bay, but I love hiking in this region. I love going up in the Pia Valley, Kulio'o, 
going up in the trails, getting up in the coal allows, I think is just, gives you such a great view of the, the bay. When you start going into the areas where you start to see native forest, it's really cool. Every weekend I get a chance, I go up. I know that you have a lot of government, nonprofit, and business partners that are helping you with this project that, that will be able to implement this, this grant to kind of broaden your work. I also know that it's important for you guys to get community input and have the community involved as well. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the community on how best they can be involved and they can help with your efforts? I think there's a combination. If there's something that they enjoy, like if they enjoy hiking or they enjoy being in the forests, if they enjoy coming down to the bay, find the nonprofit, find an organization that's working to restore those areas. It's really important. You know, we have Protect and Preserve Hawaii, Aloha Tree Alliance are both partners in our efforts. They are constantly doing outreach efforts and having people come up with their restoration. We have our Huki events, Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, Kuleana Coral Restoration, two other partners in this are going to be helping us with the coral restoration. If people are interested in that, come down. And finally, if people just like sitting at home and they're kind of like, eh, I don't really want to go swimming, I don't want to go hiking, I don't want to go down to the beach, runoff, you know, we're working with Roth Ecologic to implement green infrastructure. That's something they can do at their house. They don't have to leave. We'll come to them, tell them what options exist. So it's really just figuring out what path you want to take and how you can go there. There's people willing to help. Thanks so much for meeting me out here at Kulio Beach Park, Doug. Really appreciate your time. And I'm just glad I get to get out of the basement of the radio station. (laughs) Well, same here. I'd be at home with a couple crazy dogs right now. So being able to sit on the beach and watch other people with their crazy dogs is uh, way better. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That was Malama Manalua Doug Harper updating HPR's Russell Subiono on the work that is being done to restore and preserve East Oahu's Manalua Bay. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from the head of the Hawaii Convention Center now that lawmakers have agreed to provide money to prepare to repair the facility's leaking roof. Have a story to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? You can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 